Grab your Bible and turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. We're going to look this morning at verses 28 through 38. Or at least I'm going to read verses 28 through 38 at the beginning of the sermon. And then we'll end somewhere in there throughout the course of the sermon. But I've titled this message, Truth in Suffering. And in this section of Scripture, we're going to continue to study a biblical response and biblical endurance in the midst of suffering. But just before we jump into that study, just my word of some pastoral instruction for you, I want to encourage you. It's important for us to dig in and carefully study the words of Scripture. And it's important for us to thoroughly think through the subjects that are presented to us in God's Word, such as suffering. So we've spent quite a bit of time in Lamentations and quite a bit of time in Lamentations chapter 3 thinking through what it looks like to be a Christian in this fallen world and to suffer faithfully for Christ. It's good for us to do that. One of the dangers, though, however, is that you can focus so much on one particular aspect of the Christian life, for instance, in this case, suffering, that you get out of balance and kind of lose focus on the bigger picture. It's not to say we shouldn't think about suffering, but also in the midst of our study, we must remember that suffering is not the most significant reality in our life. We need to know how to suffer, but we need to know a lot of other things as well. God helps us in our suffering, but God does a lot of other things as well. One thing in particular that we need to note is we think through suffering thoroughly. I mean, we want to examine this from every angle that we can as the Lord gives it to us in the Scripture. We want to be ready when God calls us to suffer for Him. Or maybe if you're in the midst of suffering now, you want to know, how can I remain faithful in this moment? Those are important things. But as we think through suffering in our life, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that the biggest problem in our lives and in this world is not suffering. Friend, your biggest problem is not the trial that you're going through. Your biggest problem is not the suffering that the Lord has you enduring right now. You know what your biggest problem is, don't you? It's sin. Sin is the biggest problem in this world. And friend, sin is the biggest problem in your life. That's why in this Christmas season, that's why we celebrate the arrival of Christ. That's why Christ came. Not just because we are suffering in a fallen world and have to deal with brokenness and hurt and have to process all those things. Those are realities that Christ helps us with. But ultimately, Christ came into this world to redeem us from our sin. To save us. More than anything else, you need your sins forgiven by a holy God. And the only way that happens is through the perfect sacrifice of Christ Jesus on the cross. That's why Christ was born. Christ was born so that he could die. And he died so that you could be forgiven of your sins. There is no need greater in your life than the forgiveness of sins before an almighty God. If you endure the suffering of this life somehow without the forgiveness of sins, then you will have to endure an eternity of suffering in hell with no hope. 
no hope. Suffering is a significant part of life in this world, but suffering is not our biggest problem. Sin is. We must have our sin dealt with by the person and work of Christ Jesus. And by the way, if you have put your faith in Christ Jesus, if, if you have bowed the knee to Christ as Lord and Savior and your only hope of forgiveness, your only hope of being right with God, if you have bowed to Christ in that way, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, that is, you know what your biggest problem continues to be in this life? Sin. Not condemnation for sin, but the remaining sin in your life that the Lord is sanctifying out of you. If you come at your suffering, if you come at your life not recognizing that sin is your greatest problem, then you're not going to understand what God's doing in your life. God loves His children. He loves His people. He cares for them. He strengthens them. He sustains them. Even in the midst of their suffering, He is with them. But God's top priority is not to make you comfortable. God's top priority is to make you holy. Our greatest problem isn't our suffering. Our greatest problem is our sin. And because the Lord rightly understands that, He's willing to come at our sin however He has to. However He has to. We've seen that already in our study. And we've seen also that sometimes we love and we cherish that sin so much that when God comes after the sin in our life, it feels like He's coming after us, doesn't He? And if you don't understand, if you think that suffering in this life is worse than sin before a holy God, you're not going to understand the suffering. You're going to become disoriented by God's work in your life. And I mention all of this just to provide a little bit of a context for you, to provide some shepherding counsel as we walk through this. We need to think through more on suffering. We need to be prepared to suffer if we're not already suffering so that we can be faithful to the Lord in the midst of our suffering. But part of that, Part of that faithfulness is the recognition that suffering is not the worst part about this life. Sin is. Sin is. And so the Lord is using suffering as an instrument in our life to deal with sin. And in that way, it's gracious and good. I heard somebody recently, I guess they were trying to share the hope of the gospel. But they talked a lot about hope and 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 brokenness and we just live in a messy world now is that true yeah absolutely absolutely but the one thing this individual never mentioned was sin never mentioned sin had a large crowd of people never mentioned to them once you are all sinners and if you don't believe in Christ, you're not right with God. Never once did it mention sin. And as a result of that, because sin was never mentioned, you know what else never had to be mentioned? The cross. Look, Jesus loves you and He came into this world and He just wants to help you. Well, that's a part of the story, isn't it? But that's not the whole story, is it? That's not the whole story. The Gospel is that we are vile sinners before a holy God. And unless that sin is dealt with, we will stay in that condition forever. 
but Christ came into this world perfect in righteousness, lived in total submission to his Father, died as a sacrifice for sins on the cross, was raised from the dead, and now sits enthroned on high as the Redeemer of sinners like you and I. As we get back into our study of suffering, that's the context in which we study this topic. Now, in our study of suffering, we've seen several facets of suffering. For instance, we've seen the roles of faithfulness in suffering. We've seen the role of hope in suffering. We've seen the role of God's grace in suffering. Last week, we talked about the need for us to have faith in the midst of our suffering. And today, as we continue our study, I'd like to turn our attention to the role of truth in suffering. In fact, I'd like for us to look in this text at several specific truths that help us to suffer faithfully. You see, there's a sense in which the entire book of Lamentations is providing us truth to help us suffer, but these verses in particular contain some unique and powerful truths that we're going to need to hold on to if we're going to endure faithfully in the midst of our suffering. So look with me at these verses, Lamentations chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 28, and I'll read through uh, verse 39. Here the Word of God says, Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve." Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Friend, in the midst of suffering, we desperately need divine truth. In the midst of our trials, we need God to speak into our lives through the Holy Scriptures. We need truth in our life to cut through our limited perspective in suffering. In the midst of our suffering, we feel like we understand it completely. If this happens, and that's going to happen, and this is going to happen, and my whole life's going to be over. We feel like we've got, I got it all figured out. I know exactly what's going to happen, but we don't, do we? In fact, in the midst of our suffering, our perspective is extremely limited. We could speak a lot to that, but especially in the sense that we don't even have an eternal perspective of how all of these things are going to work out. So what do we need? We need God's truth to speak into our situation, to speak into our suffering, and provide us with an eternal perspective, a right perspective, a full perspective on what's going on. Additionally, we need the truth of God's Word to to cut through our heightened emotions in the midst of suffering. 
It's so easy in the midst of our suffering to, to let our emotions run wild. Part of self-control is not just controlling your physical self. It's controlling your emotional self and those emotions. And in the midst of suffering, it is so hard to have that kind of self-control. You, you just kind of run wild with these emotions. And emotional thinking is almost never helpful thinking. So what do we need? We need God's truth to step into our circumstances and provide us with objectivity. When I'm emotional, I'm not objective. But God's Word is always objective. I need God's truth in that way. Additionally, we need God's truth to, to cut through our anxious thoughts in the midst of suffering. The Scriptures compare a uh, uh, an anxious heart or an anxious mind with a city that has no walls. It's totally unprotected. It's hard enough to take every thought captive to Christ and to control your thoughts and to think true thoughts according to what Philippians 4 says. But when you're anxious, that just is out the window. You're a city with no walls. You can't control those thoughts. You have, you have every kind of anxious thought assaulting your mind and no defense mechanism. It just starts rolling down the hill like a giant boulder and it seems like I cannot turn this off. What we need is we need the truth to step into our circumstances and provide us with the, the comfort and the stability that our inner man needs. Additionally, we could say that we need the truth in the midst of our suffering to, to cut through our worldly solutions. We're so used to responding in a fallen way to our circumstances. It's programmed into us. And then what, what's programmed into us through our sin nature and then our remaining sin is then reinforced by the world around us. And so when we get into situation A, we want to respond, well, here's, here's what the handbook says. This is how I respond to that. They did this to me, I'm going to do that to them. Oh, I'm going to take care of myself in this. I know exactly what I need to do. I'm going to go tell them something. All worldly solutions, mind you. But they, they become so, I almost said second nature, but it's actually first nature. The second nature solution is God's solution, isn't it? The new nature solution. That's what we need. We need God's wisdom from above, James 3 says, to cut through our worldly solutions to suffering. And of course, we could go on and on and on about the role of truth in the midst of suffering. But suffice it to say, faithful endurance in suffering is always the direct result of allowing God's truth to guide us. If you are going to faithful, faithfully endure your suffering, it's not going to be on the basis of your feelings. It's not going to be on the basis of your wisdom. It's going to be on the basis of God's truth and your faith in it and obedience to it. The truth of Scripture is an anchor that will steady your soul in the midst of life's trials. And it's the only anchor with a chain deep enough and long enough to get all the way down to the bottom. And that's what we find in these verses before us today. In these verses, we find truth that was specifically written to steady our souls in the midst of suffering. Now, specifically, as we study through this passage... And we won't complete it this week, but as we study through this passage, we're going to see four truths that will sustain us in the midst of suffering. 
Four, four truths that are uniquely written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the prophet in order to help us through our suffering. And this is really a special gift from the Lord. These are truths uniquely fitted to a specific trial that we either might be in right now or will be in the future. We have a dear friend of ours right now who's been uh, just... Uh, shockingly diagnosed with cancer and it's serious and they began uh, they've begun the treatment on her but some of it they're waiting on because they need more of the pathology results they need to find out what this cancer is better so that they could specifically engineer the treatment to match the exact structure of the cancer they don't want to just throw anything general at this. They want to get a very specific regimen of treatment that will match exactly what the molecular structure of her cancer is. Well, in a sense, God has specifically tailored these truths to match the kind of temptations and the kind of problems we're going to have in the midst of suffering. You see, certain truths are more helpful in the midst of suffering than others. They're all true in the Scripture, of course, and they're all helpful to some degree or another. But, but these truths have been specifically engineered by the Holy Spirit to produce endurance in our hearts, specifically endurance in the midst of suffering. And as we turn our attention this morning to verses 28 through 30, we find the first of these very specific sustaining truths in verses 28 through 30. Here we see what we might call the truth about God's trustworthiness. The truth of God's trustworthiness. See, friend, in the midst of trial and temptation, few truths are more crucial than the truth of God's trustworthiness. In the midst of your trials, in the midst of your temptations, you must understand that you can completely trust God. Or maybe to put it the opposite way, in the midst of your trials and temptation, you must learn to entrust yourself to God. You must learn to hand yourself over to the one who is completely trustworthy in every scenario. And notice how the prophet exhorts his readers with this compelling truth of God's trustworthiness. In verse 28, the prophet writes, Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. And here the prophet is pointing out that when you have the trustworthiness of God before you, when you believe in and trust in the trustworthiness of God, that will compel in you a trusting silence of God. The prophet says, let him sit alone. And here he's hearkening back to, to how the book opened in chapter 1, verse 1. In chapter 1, verse 1, the prophet is describing the punishment that the Lord has brought on Jerusalem. And he says, how lonely sits the city. The city was all alone in their punishment before the Lord. And so, and so here when, when the prophet is saying, let him sit alone, he's reminding us of this punishment that they had to endure. 
But at the same time, he's encouraging the people to receive that punishment as from the Lord. You need to stand down. The Lord is trying to humble you. The Lord is trying to put you down where you need to be. You need to stand down and stop bowing up against it. You need to sit there alone. You need to trust God with the details of this punishment. You need to recognize your position. Specifically, the prophet says you need to sit alone when it is laid on you, when it is laid on him. You say, what, what is laid on this person? What is laid on this believer the prophet's talking about? Well, if you go back to verse 27, it says, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And there the yoke is speaking of essentially the Lord's providential discipline in the life of his children. And so in verse 28, when the prophet says, look, when the Lord lays it on you, what is it? The yoke. When the Lord lays this yoke upon you, you need to sit there. You need to own it. You need to take it. Now, of course, for the people of Israel, this is speaking uh, specifically about the exile. The Lord was punishing his people. He was, he was removing them from the land of promise. He was removing their national identity. Essentially, he was taking them away from virtually all of the blessings of the covenant. Temple, gone. Sacrificial system, gone. At least temporarily. He was removing all of that from them and sending them off into captivity. That's what the yoke was for them. And here the prophet is saying, you need to receive this as from the Lord. And of course, for us, the Lord is not sending us to Babylon. I trust. I hope. I pray. Sometimes the Lord does bring his hand of providence, his hand of discipline down upon us in our lives, doesn't he? Sometimes the Lord does lay His yoke upon us, whatever that might be in our specific circumstances. And what the prophet is saying is, you've got to trust the Lord in that, and you've got to sit there and you've got to receive this as from the Lord. Don't go seeking it out. If the Lord hasn't put a yoke on you, don't look for one. But but when He puts a a burden in your life that you, you can't escape, at least not through approved means from the Scripture, You've got to receive that as from the Lord. In fact, you've got to receive it to the point where not only do you just sit there alone and receive it from the Lord, but the prophet says you need to sit there in silence. You you need to sit there quietly. In other words, you need to receive this as from the Lord. You need to trust the Lord so as that you're not even complaining about it. Boy, that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Because there are a lot of us who say, well, this is, this is my cross to bear. As if you're comparing your suffering to Christ's cross. But that's another sermon for another time. But, you know, the Lord's laid this yoke upon me and I've just got to endure it. Now let me get on the phone and call my closest friends and complain about it the whole time. This is just so awful. Why is God doing this? Look. Can you honestly go to a friend and seek help and and, and confess these things? Absolutely. But sometimes our confession overflows into what we think is sanctified complaining, doesn't it? 
It's murmuring. It's grumbling. It's questioning. And what the prophet is saying is, don't just sit there and take it, but sit there quietly. Receive it as from the Lord. Don't complain. We could we could combine this with Philippians 2.14 where Paul says, do all things without complaining, right? Without grumbling and complaining. That's a favorite verse in our house. At least favorite of the parents. But do all things without complaining and grumbling. And we might put this together with Lamentations chapter 3 and say, even in suffering. Even in suffering. You say, how do I get to the place in my life where I can respond to suffering, not only by receiving it, but receiving it with a quiet heart and without complaining? Well, friend, this kind of trusting silence is only possible when you have an accurate view of God and His trustworthiness. We don't have to go there this morning, but you remember Job? You know, first... 39 or so chapters of Job. Was Job waiting quietly? Was he sitting down quietly? Not really. He was sitting there. He wished he had been alone, but he had his friends there. But was he quiet or was he questioning? Well, he was questioning the Lord. If I just could plead my case before the Lord right now, I'd show that this is all just illegitimate. What I need is a go-between between me and God, an umpire, so to speak. What was he doing? He's questioning. But then all of a sudden, when God speaks into the situation, and says, who are you, O oh man? Who are you? And then he starts to talk about all that he's done and all that he's created. You remember Job's reaction? He put his hand over his mouth. I'm done. I'm done. I'm just going to not just sit here, but I'm going to sit here quietly because now I see who God is when you see who God is particularly when you see that you can trust God with your circumstances it compels in us a trusting silence of the Lord you could also say that when you recognize the trustworthiness of who God is it it, it compels within us a humble surrender to God Verse 28 goes, or verse 29, I should say, goes on and says, Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Now, this phrase, put your mouth in the dust, that's, we, we, we certainly would underst- want to understand the, the, the figurative speech here. I don't want all of you leaving here today and, and trying to find a dusty spot to put your mouth in. The prophet is not saying, eat dirt and die. It's figurative language. And and what it signifies is an attitude of humble surrender. In fact, this kind of language was often used uh, to refer to a king who would bow before a conquering king. So here a king, he goes to battle, he loses that battle, he's being conquered, so what does he do now? He bows himself down before the the conquering king and he puts his face all the way down to the ground to signify his surrender and his submission to the king who conquered him. And by the way, this is the exact thing that the people of Judah refused to do, wasn't it? God said through the prophet, I'm sending punishment. If you'll just submit to it and submit to these invading kings, 
these invading uh, armies, then it will be easier for you. And they said, I don't think so. We're going to fight this to the end. And God kept warning them, if you continue to fight, it will be worse. But what would they not do? They would not humble themselves and receive this punishment. They would not surrender. They would not put their mouth in the dust, so to speak. So the prophet is essentially saying, look, you can trust the Lord in this. When he says to do it, do it. And if you will humbly surrender yourself to him, the prophet says, look, there may yet be hope. Now, we don't have to go into our study of hope again. You can, you can get online and download that sermon and listen to the, that and study out hope. But hope is a certainty, a certainty of the promises of God, right? So why does it seem like the prophet here is speaking of hope in a way that doesn't seem all that certain? You know, the prophet's like, well, there may yet be hope. I mean, who knows? There might be hope. Whereas earlier he was saying, look, there is definitely hope. Why the difference? Well, I think part of what's going on here is that God had promised, if you will receive this punishment, it will go easier on you when you go into exile. And what the prophet Jeremiah essentially is saying is, look, we can still cash in on that conditional promise. If we keep fighting, it's only going to get worse. If we'll just submit ourselves to our invaders and submit ourselves to the Lord, even more importantly, then there may be yet hope that all those promises of things being not as severe will be true and the Lord will relent. But if we keep going down this path of rebellion to the Lord and hardening our hearts against the Lord, it's only going to get worse. That's the point. Jeremiah is looking to the, to, to the relief of God and then the ultimate return into the land and saying, look, this is going to be an easier path for us to take if we will just bow ourselves before the Lord. And by the way, that is so true for us even in our own circumstances, isn't it? You can, you can fight against what the Lord's doing all you want. You can rebel against His Word. You could try to, to, to remove yourself from the providential circumstances and the providential burdens He's laid in your life. But there's no hope in that. There's no hope in that. And I think we can go so far as even to say you can't claim the hope of God and His future promises unless you're willing to humbly surrender to His present providence. You can't say, here's another way of putting this. You can't say, well, God, I trust you for what you're going to do in heaven, but I'm not sure I can trust you with my life here on this earth. Either the Lord is trustworthy or he's not. And if you're trusting him for those future promises, then you need to surrender to him now, humble yourself and trust him right where you're at. As one commentator put it, referring to what this verse is calling for, he said it's calling for men so subdued to obedience that they are ready to bear whatever God may lay on them. That's what it is. And sometimes we say, God, I can't handle this. And then God puts it on us and you say, oh, I was wrong. By His grace, I actually can handle this. What I meant to say was, God, this is going to be more uncomfortable than I wanted it to be. But when you trust the Lord, it leads to that humble surrender. Okay? You're trustworthy, Lord. I bring my mouth to the dust. And I'll trust in you. 
As we keep going in verse 30, the prophet shows us how far we can go in trusting the Lord, and it's all the way. You can submit to the Lord even to the point of losing your reputation and being mistreated by others. Verse 30 says, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. To strike somebody on the cheek in this day was a shameful act of disrespect. Shameful act of disrespect. It would be almost as disrespectful as going to an Eagles game with a Cowboys jersey on. I mean, this is, this is serious stuff, okay? Now, this, is, th- th- this would be an ultimate act of disrespect towards somebody to slap them in the face in this way. Notice the prophet said, let him give his cheek to that. You take that disrespect. If that's what the Lord brings you, you take the disrespect. Don't fight against it. Additionally, it says, speaks of being filled with insults. Literally satiated, uh, filled to the brim, filled to overflow with shameful insults. It's total scorn. It's an assault on your reputation. That's what it is. And, and, and when it comes to this kind of thing, it's almost easier for us to accept kind of the, the general providential trials of life, isn't it? The, the diseases, the suffering, the financial things. Those aren't easy. We don't want those. But it's almost easier in our inner man to receive those than it is to receive shame and scorn from another person. Why don't they like me? Why I can't believe they said this about me. I've got to defend my reputation. In fact, sometimes suffering and mistreatment at the hands of others makes it tough to see the hand of God in our lives. You get that medical diagnosis. You say, boy, the Lord's in control. But you find out somebody's been gossiping behind your back. And all of a sudden you're just like, the only thing you can think about is them. Not what the Lord might be doing through it. Look, don't go looking for this kind of mistreatment. You don't want it. I've experienced that. You don't want that. But if it comes your way, well, first of all, if it comes your way due to your sin, then you need to own it. If people see your sin and, and, and see it for what it is, and that's humbling, then you receive that from the Lord and you let the Lord humble you through it. But even if it's not because of your sin, even if it become, comes because of your obedience, if your name is run through the mud, not because you sin, but because you are obedient and faithful to the Lord, and, and, and people don't like that. If your reputation is assaulted for that, then you know what you need to do with that? You've got to trust the Lord in that. Look, accepting scorn and submission to the Father, that's exactly what Jesus did, and that's what He requires of His disciples. And think about it. Jesus literally received slaps on the cheek from those Roman soldiers. All the while, having the, the, the full power of divinity and being able to call down legions of angels on this guy. No doubt there were angels with their hands on their spirit swords, whatever that looks like, ready to just go to war to defend their Lord. And yet they were stayed in their place. Why? Because of the submission to the Son to this kind of scorn. And, and not only did Christ endure this kind of total assault on his reputation. I mean, the Pharisees, 
They said he did his works because Satan was helping him. Uh, 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 they claimed, uh, you know, uh, he was illegitimately conceived. He was blasphemer. That's what they finally uh, 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 sentenced him to death for is because he blasphemed. He's God. His character was assaulted and it continues to be assaulted to this day by sinners who know nothing of who he truly is. Yet Christ received it. And not only did he receive it, but he requires it of his disciples. Somebody slaps you on the cheek. What is Christ's admonition to you? You turn the other cheek. You've got to walk a mile through scorn and accusation. You know what you do? You fight it tooth and nail. You use every dirty trick in the book to try and get out of it, right? You, you return in kind. If they're going to scorn you, you scorn them back. If they're going to gossip you, you gossip them back. You control that information. You make them look as bad as possible so nobody believe what they say about you. That's what you do, right? I don't think so. They say walk a mile, what do you do? You go the extra mile. You receive it. Why? Not because you trust them. They're not trustworthy. Not if they're gossiping about you. You do it because you trust the Lord. You trust the Lord. You see, Christ was able to set the standard for submitted suffering in his human nature because he completely entrusted himself to the Father. If you want, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and see this. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to what the Spirit through Peter says. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. That's hard. When I get reviled, I want to go on the defense. And then after a couple minutes of defense, I kind of my flesh enjoys it. So then I want to go on the offense. Christ humbly submitted to this. Why? Well, the end of verse 23 gives us the key here. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted his reputation to the Father. The Father promised, I'm going to glorify you. Okay. I'll receive this. I'll receive this. I'll submit to this. I'll surrender to this if this is your plan, Father. Why? Because I trust you. I'm entrusting myself. I'm entrusting my reputation to you. Ultimately, you're going to bring all things to light. You're, to, you're going to vindicate everything that is righteous. You're going to glorify my name. He entrusted himself to the Father. In other words, he never doubted the trustworthiness of the Father. And that's it. That's the truth undergirding everything the prophet's saying in these three verses. It is absolutely, from a human perspective, nonsensical to just trust in silence these kind of things or to humbly surrender to it or, or, or to entrust yourself and submit. From a human perspective, that's nonsense. But when you understand how good and trustworthy God is, it's really the only option, isn't it? And by the way, the, the increased intensity of the suffering that is described by the prophet here, it reminds us there is no point at which we can tap out and say, okay, I'm done. I did this for a while. I'm done. Tap out. This is too hard. 
There's no tap out point. There's, there's no point at which we can abandon our trust for God. And here's why. There's no point at which God ceases to be trustworthy. You might not see it come to fruition until heaven. But there's no point at which we can tap out and say, well, I did this for a while. It's not working out for me. I am done. Now, the prophet says, you receive that discipline. If it requires you to submit to whatever the Lord's doing, then you submit to it. And then if it requires for you to be scorned and mocked and your reputation to be drugged through the mud by sinful individuals, you know what you do? You receive that as well. Why? Not because you trust them, but because you trust God. You see how this is a truth that's uniquely fit to help us through our suffering? And when we allow the truth about God's trustworthiness to shepherd our hearts in the midst of our suffering, it will compel in us the same kind of trusting silence, the same kind of humble surrender, and the same kind of entrusted submission in our lives, no matter how intense the trial or the temptation might become. Ultimately, this was perfectly personified in Christ. This is what Christ calls us to. And this, by God's grace, by the Spirit of Christ, this is what we are empowered to do. It's going to be a lot easier for us if with the eyes of faith we continue to look forward and see that God is trustworthy. Friend, I don't know what your circumstances are. And I know often we find ourselves in circumstances where we might be tempted to question the Lord. And sometimes there are lots of questions we take to the Lord. But at the end of the day, don't you ever question the Lord or don't you ever go into your circumstances as a child of God doubting His trustworthiness. He might not show you the answers. He might not resolve it as quick as you would like. He might withhold some of uh, the insights that you think you need until you're glorified in the presence of His Son. <clears throat> But at no point, at no point will God ever cease to be trustworthy. We can trust Him with everything, including our very souls. And that's the kind of truth that helps us to suffer faithfully, doesn't it? We pray with me. Lord, we thank You for these truths. And even as we study and think through these things, we recognize, Lord, that these are not light or trite things. To say these things is important and it's from your word. But that's not to say it's simple or easy. And so, Lord, as we seek to look to your trustworthiness and, and entrust our lives and our souls to you. Lord, give us the faith that we need to place ourselves completely at your disposal and trust you in that. Lord, we're so thankful that that's what our Savior Jesus Christ did for us to the point of even dying on the cross because He trusted you and He loved us. Lord, let us not only believe in this work that Christ has done, but Lord, let us learn from His example of perfect trust in You. Lord, we love You and we know You are trustworthy. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.